Hello, everybody, and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a faculty member and public health researcher at Ohio University. We're excited you could be with us today. Today, we have our guest, Dr. Rebecca Crawford, who's an assistant professor of community and public health in the Department of Social and Public Health at Ohio University. She earned a health communication relating and organizing PhD and a relating and organizing health communication masters, both from Ohio University. Dr. Crawford's research focuses on mental health care, messages and stigma within religious organizations and communities, communicating about sexual and reproductive health with religious audiences, sexual and gendered violence, LGBTQ plus health disparities, risk communication and health campaigns. Welcome, Dr. Crawford. Thanks for having me. So I had um, someone on a few weeks ago about mass communication, but I really wanted to get into the nitty gritty of health communication. And I'm excited to have you on the podcast today, given all that's going on right now uh, with the pandemic and also other health issues as well as community health related um, and public health related matters. So just tell us a little bit about health communication. What is it and what does it take to be a health communication expert? Well, health communication has traditionally been a quantitative uh, discipline. So it began specifically with people looking at health campaigns and how effective they are on a broad scale um, with statistical analysis. And and I'm a, um, a little bit of a hybrid because I do qualitative research and I focus on how culture affects messaging and how context um, influences the success of different health communication efforts. So to become a health communication specialist, you can get a degree in communication studies with a, with an emphasis in health communication. Awesome. So why did you decide to pursue this field? I love the idea of trying to help the world be a healthier place. And for me, a lot of the rubber hits the road with um, persuasion and messaging and figuring out what things people value and how to talk to them in their own language and with their with their own um, cultural awarenesses in ways that will help get the message across and create communities that are helping to pursue health together. Awesome. And speaking of the need to contextualize the messages that we have or we put out, uh, we are in a time when there are many threats um, to global public health through diseases or environmental calamities, and most of them are rooted in human behavior. So what role does communi- health communication play in influencing health behavior, and what's the purpose of focusing on messaging? Well, we can have all the greatest information out there that doesn't do anybody any good unless it's delivered in ways that people can understand and appreciate and respond to. So I see health communication as being especially important right now in that we have a lot of scientific data that lets us know how to decrease health disparities and how to improve environmental health and and safety at work. But unless we can persuade people and engage them with that data, it's 
it's really not going to make any difference. So I feel like right now, especially with the polarized political situation and with globalization in general, it's really important to be able to know how to speak to different audiences and to switch your message in ways that will enter into their community and into their culture and let them understand that that you have good intentions and um, that we all want to be healthy and de- decrease disparities together. So if we picked a place like Appalachia right now, and when you're thinking about this cultural nuances and contextualizing our messages, could you describe to us how best to communicate the importance of wearing a mask or social distancing? What, what do we need to do and how do we need to put out that information? Well, I think to understand history and context is a really great place to start. You know, Appalachia has historically been exploited with an extraction economy from outsiders who come in and take coal or take natural gas and bring riches out of the community. So I think because of this history, a lot of people in Appalachia feel a little distrusting of outsiders. So the first step, I think, to communicating with folks from a local Appalachian community would be to find gatekeepers of that community who um, are respected local leaders and to bring them on board as an engaged partner um, to help you Uh, inform your messaging and also to help you know how to best deliver it into the community. Awesome. So going into your research interests, um, they are varied, include a number of health topics such as mental health care, messages, stigma within religious organizations and communities and all those other things that I mentioned um, in your biography. So tell us a little bit of why you are interested in this distinct research areas. What's the story behind that? So they sound very disparate, but they all really link together in religious communities um, and their values. So so different religious communities feel differently about mental health and and its level of legitimacy and different religious communities talk about sexuality and communicate about it in ways that really inform sexual behaviors and and risk-taking. And different religious communities also have spiritual beliefs about, about LGBTQ identities and the way that they communicate about those things can really impact the physical and mental health of LGBTQ members within their communities. So um, I'm, I'm interested in religious communities for uh, both personal and professional reasons. Um, professionally, I feel like the academy, going back to the enlightenment and its emphasis on secularism and science, has in a large part overlooked religion especially with its intersection with health. So I feel like bringing that into the conversation is very valuable because research has shown that the biggest indicators for culture and cultural health behaviors are race and ethnicity and religion. It affects, like I said, who you sleep with, what you eat, how much you exercise, all of all of these behaviors. So I think Understanding cultural values in relation to these health behaviors is a great big step towards knowing how to reach out and communicate with communities that have often not been kind of on our radar as as scholars and maybe as community workers. Um, In addition, religious communities in many 
places step in and do health work, both mental health and physical health. And they act as a different kind of safety net, um, especially when government resources aren't available. So in, in vulnerable communities like rural communities or, or Appalachian, you know, more separated communities, it's the religious community that is providing a lot of these direct services. So th that's my professional interest. And my personal interest is that I grew up in an, a very, very religious community and family, uh, very tight-knit, uh, very loving. Um, and I inherited through my upbringings very specific ideas about my opportunities as a woman, about the traditional gender roles, about LGBTQ identity, and about a lot of health behaviors. And through my my journey as a as a woman, I have come to challenge and change some of those ideas. It's been very hard, but also a very freeing process. Um, so I feel like, in some senses, I have a dual vision in that I I really understand and and love and and can relate to what it feels like to be inside a religious community that informs so many of these perspectives and health behaviors. And I also can look at it from an outside professional research perspective. And that, I think, helps me to better understand what happens to these messages when they go into religious cultures and how they get communicated and understood. Wonderful. So based on that personal and professional experience, could you just tell us a little bit about how you engaged the religious organizations to open up about topics that are sensitive, such as sexual and reproductive health? Yeah, certainly. My research engages mostly right now with religious leaders, and I meet with them and talk with them about the ways that they take care of their congregations and their um, community members. And in those open-ended interviews, they reveal in their talk lots of um, concerns. And sometimes they speak in their language of tension between what their ideological commitments are and then what they see actually happening and being played out in the lives of their members. And so my analysis of that language allows me, allows me to sort of tease out some of the problems or concerns that are created by certain religious ideologies and specifically with regards to mental wellness and sexual health and LGBTQ holistic health. And at the same time, I'm able to celebrate the holistic response and the social and emotional support that these religious communities provide for their members and see both sides of the picture that sometimes mental and physical health is constrained, but sometimes it is, is very strongly supported. And when you speak of mental health, how is it perceived in the religious communities? I think religious communities in general are much more advanced and scientific than they get credit for being. A lot of people assume that religious communities believe in demonic possession and interpret all mental health issues in that lens. But from the wide variety of religions I've spoken to, that's a very, very minor perspective. And Religious leaders who come to their leadership doubting the legitimacy of mental health, usually it takes about a year to 18 months before their doubts are removed and they become fully 
accepting of mental health as a legitimate issue. And many of them partner with professionals and become, and this is, proves that too in the national statistics that religious leaders are some of the largest referral networks for professional mental health care providers. So they, they provide a, a connection for people in their community who need it. So I know you've published a couple of manuscripts on mental illness in religious organizations. Could you tell us about that research? Definitely. My, my research started in, in my own home community with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and that's a very, um, it's, in some ways it's a very unique religious community, but it's also, um, they have some themes in it that are very, that apply broadly. I, I also have done research with religious communities situated in Appalachia and, and spoken with them about the services that, that they provide there. And um, some broad themes that I have found are that when religious ideology is very um, concrete and it very tightly connects bad things happening to bad people, it enables a lot of stigma experience mental health. And it requires people to, to hide their conditions and it limits the amount of support that they can get from their community. Now, in, in religious groups or, or organizations or even local congregations where the religious leader is very vocal about that there's chaos in the system, that sometimes, you know, not every bad thing is, is a strict punishment from God. It really helps the people in that congregation to be authentic and to communicate more about their needs and um, to receive the support and the help that they need. And one very distinguishing characteristic that I found, which shouldn't surprise anyone, is that religious leaders who are very open about this flexibility and who conscientiously strive to mention health from the pulpit are often people who have a loved one who struggles with mental health and and they purposefully set out to decrease stigma to provide informal um, one-on-one counseling support and also a great referral service to their professional partners. Wonderful. And so thinking from a health communication and messaging uh, perspective, are there things that they do to communicate mental illness to their congregants to sort of normalize it? Absolutely. And they range from the, um, the explicit to the very nuanced and subtle. So sometimes religious leaders will be like, our Sunday school lesson is on mental illness and I'll just <laughs> do it. And, and, and they'll talk about relationships and, and emotions in a very holistic and very validating way. Um, I think sometimes when we get very rational and very like focused on science, we forget to acknowledge emotions and their and their power in our decision making process and on, even in our health health seeking behaviors. Um, and sometimes religious leaders don't explicitly communicate it, but they they have these messages of love and acceptance and that kind of unconditional regard creates communities that promote. Um, positive mental health outcomes, and decreased stigma. And so when we think about this messaging, um, I gather that most of it is among adults. So how do they do this with youth and maybe even young children? That's a great question. With young children, a lot of the religious curriculum 
focuses on relationships and families and how to seek healthy behaviors and, and ways to be to be happy. I think curricula that that focus on sustaining the body, you know, exercise, healthy food, sleep, all of these things have excellent um, implications for, for mental health. And then for youth, um, we, you know, the youth, that transition into young adulthood and through adolescence is when a lot of mental health issues begin to manifest. And it's also just, you know, a bumpy transition and, you know, a hard social situation for, for many young people. So having a religious leader and many of them said this explicitly to me, I work very hard to create and maintain trusting relationships with people who are in this vulnerable stage of their life. And they, they meet with them one-on-one regularly and create um, confidence and trust. And they can have conversations where they act as, as a mentor who is separate from their parent, but who is an adult who cares about them and, and supports them. Now, I, I'd like to add one very important caveat to this um, relationship. Um, if the religious leader is using this trusting context to ask explicit or probing questions about sexual behavior, then those positive outcomes are negated. It be- if it becomes a form of of social control about about sexuality, then many of those interactions become sources of stress and shame that decrease both mental wellness and also hum- healthy human sexuality. And do they receive any kind of training um, that helps probably, um, you know, deal with those challenges? Because as you know, there has been a history of uh, re- some religious leaders, um, you know, sexually abusing um, their congregants. Absolutely. And so the training varies between religious disciplines. Most of my research thus far has been with a variety of Christian faiths. Some religious leaders are professionals who who have uh, divinity degrees. And part of that process is the only way I can compare it is like they're like a student teacher. You know, they go out as an intern and shadow another pastor and learn how to do this pastoral care through that experience and also through classes and support groups where they where they talk about this pastoral care aspect and, and they learn how to do it. Other religious communities that have lay leadership have even less training and have less oversight. And so in that sense, their their training is socialization as they come up through the ranks of um, their own you know, religious experience in this community. And the beautiful thing about that is, is that it creates a variety of people who feel it's their spiritual duty to care for their brother or sister. Uh, the problem with that is that if there is a cultural weakness in regards to sexuality, especially with an understanding to the gendered power implications of healthy human sexuality, then that weakness can get replicated and passed down as people are socialized generation by generation within this tight-knit community. Mm-hmm. And speaking of those gendered um, influences, you do work on or you, your research focuses on sexual and gendered violence. Could you tell us what that entails? Definitely. So um, this is the beauty of 
of qualitative research is that you follow the data and um, very prominently themed in my interview transcripts are different discussions that talk about how religious leaders do or do not understand sexual consent and what that lack of understanding or information means to their appropriate responses to reports of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have a very tight-knit religious community that very closely monitors sexual behavior and has very specific mores about sexual behavior, what happens is there are conversations in religious settings where people are confessing um, sexual acts. <laughs> and if you live in a religious community that doesn't explicitly talk about consent, then the m- main benchmark that people use to make sense of whether an act was violent or not, or whether it was crossing a healthy boundary, is removed. So many times, if a religious leader hasn't been trained or isn't aware of gendered power imbalances or the need to explicitly talk about consent, then somebody will come to them. Almost always it's young women and they confess a sexual act that really was an assault or a rape. And then they get disciplined within the religious system as if they were a sinner. Hmm. And it really... So the women are already traumatized by the experience and then they experience a secondary traumatization when they report. And instead of receiving support, comfort and referrals to, you know, a rape crisis center, they get shamed and punished and blamed for it. And unfortunately, some of my research has taken place at religious universities where the the sponsoring um, institution is a church. And so... These ideas get written into university honor code rules and young women get kicked out of school for being raped and reporting it and asking for help. So there's a very clear sense-making problem here and and a very clear opportunity for talking about consent and bringing people on board in ways that could make a very, very big difference in, in the mental wellness of, of survivors inside these communities. Um, and the trick is just figuring out how to convince largely male traditional leaders to um, to be open to information from secular, scientific, and or feminist venues. Wonderful. And so what kind of health campaigns can we um, develop to address some of these challenges? Well, I think it's not low-hanging fruit, but if it can be achieved, I think it would have spectacular results. If we could create bridges between religious leaders and religious communities and rape crisis centers or mental health care professionals who are informed about sexual violence and resulting trauma, I think we could increase reporting statistics and also turn this tight-knit community into an amazing support network for survivors um, as they as they process and, and go through um, their healing experiences. So um, the health campaign would be creating trust on a local level between professional advocates 
and religious leaders and trying to find common cultural ground in which they could build trust and, and create um, inter-organizational collaborations. Um, I see you've also done some work on health disparities among the LGBTQ+. Have you looked at this from a, a religious perspective or just in general? I've done both. Um, I've done I've done qualitative work about the experiences of LGBTQ plus members inside religious communities that specifically have doctrines against um, LGBTQ identities and relationships. And the data is is sobering. Religious communities that have this fantastic power to support each other have the dark side of that is that they have just as much power to reject and shame individuals. And when these individuals are youth who are vulnerable and who cannot leave their hometown or their home church, who have no access to information from the outside that is affirming to their um, their gender identity or their sexual identity, the data is very clear that these individuals suffer both from mental health disparities and also that that the suicide rate and and risky health behaviors are are enabled in these in these situations so that's um sad news from yeah from the qualitative research that the quantitative research that i've brought in recently into looks at lgbtq folks broadly in their experiences with mental health care um secular professionally trained uh, therapists and counselors. And what that research shows is that, well, first of all, LGBTQ folks, their their two main health concerns are mental health and sexual health. And they need to have these these needs met, but the traditional uh, mental health apparatus is is, um, untrained and unprepared to be affirming and to um, be responsive to LGBTQ specific mental health needs. So, so sometimes sexual identity is implicated in, in professional care and sometimes it isn't. And, and it's up to the therapist to know when it is and isn't and not to rely on the client to train or inform or educate them. So, so a lot of LGBTQ folks um, express concern with the quality of mental health that they receive the healthcare that they receive in traditional settings. And, and there's a lot of new data about alternative mental health approaches that we need more training. Um, we need more LGBTQ mental health care therapists. Um, and then there are also online and peer support resources through nonprofits and, and other NGOs that actually are meeting LGBTQ mental health needs in more effective, high-quality ways than uh, some of the traditional places. Great. And looking at the larger public health issues, how do we address community literacy levels in health communication when trying to explain complex public health issues? That is a great question that I think all the time about. So I have a couple ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, One that I've noticed in public health is that we we rely a lot on on science as the legitimacy for behind our messages and different communities have a different relationship with science as a credibility issue or as a credible source so i think though we may come from a scientific background and and our information is based on rigorous scientific data i don't know if that's always the number one to credibility that we should be making with our audiences. Um, I think 
it is very helpful when we are trying to communicate health data to think first about our specific audience and what their cultural values are. And one great way to convince people or inform them that something is at risk, their health or their safety or, or something like that, is, is to talk about what they value as being potentially affected by this threat. Um, and that, you know, that requires a lot of nuance and a lot of specific messaging. But if we understand what people care about and then talk about that as being affected by this situation, I think they're very, they're very quick to, to respond and to pay attention. The other thing that I think a lot about is how public health is rightly so Many times it's a governmental entity. And just like different people have different relationships with science, uh, different communities in our nation have different levels of trust with the government. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of that is, is justified, especially when we think about racial or ethnic minorities and, and the past that they've had with the government. So I think we also, when we communicate, need to be very aware of how people's perceptions of the government and how their level of trust in the government might rub off, rub off on us as communicators. And, and if, if we're working with communities that have been traditionally neglected or maybe even exploited, we might work very hard to ally ourselves with the community more broadly and explicitly than we would claim our authority as a, as a government employee. I concur because as we have seen with uh, this current um, COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a lot of resistance um, from communities, um, you know, just not really connecting with the science. And so I think when we go back to what you said about gatekeepers, I think we have to find a way to connect that information from the science to make it much simpler in a way that will, you know, relate to our community members. Yeah, I I love the research on on numeracy and people's limited ability to make sense of some of the minute doses or or parts per million in water you know like a lot of times we talk about environmental or health threats with a yeah. lot of statistics mm -hmm. and the research shows that the more broad you get with your data set and numbers the less relatable it is and mm -hmm. I'm a narrative scholar so of course I'm biased but but in many cases stories that focus on one case one community specifics of the situation that bring the context in and include an emotional response are, are much more easy to understand and quickly move people. Right. I also think when you talk about stories, maybe even having survivors who have gone through this disease and have, you know, uh, are doing well to probably be the ones to craft the messages, right? To reach out to their community members, as opposed to always seeing these professionals who seem so far-fetched, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's very hard to perceive something as real when you don't have any kind of direct experience with it. So a lot of people think COVID-19 isn't real until they know a friend of a friend who gets it. And then that brings it fresh and home. So if you have survivors um, and if they're relatable and if they're telling their story, then that can mimic that process of having a friend of a friend tell you about their experience. And that can be very effective in making this 
threat feel concrete and less abstract. Indeed. And I think we can borrow from other pandemics such as HIV or even people who have gone through opioid use and have become ambassadors um, to help with the messaging. It's something maybe we can do with COVID as well. I love that. Ambassadors who are also connected to their community who are speaking as insiders is is the perfect is the perfect setup for message delivery in my opinion. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. This was extremely enlightening, um knowing more about messaging and the importance of contextualizing, and we hope to call on you again next time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to the listeners. We hope to connect with you again next week.